Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's good to see all of you. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Alex, and i um, you know, as we're reopening and <laughs> going about church in this strange season of life, you know, we have kids around, they'll be loud, they'll be squirmy, they'll be clipboards and coffee tumblers and things that make noise in here. Just embrace the weirdness. We're not here to be, uh, to perform. We're the children of God. This is not a production. We're here to worship our King. So let's just do that today. Um, and so as you just heard Lisa read, we're walking through Hebrews chapter one. We're finishing chapter one today. Last week we began journeying through this epistle. And so if you didn't, if you didn't tune in online or weren't here, um, you can go back and listen to that and get some of the foundational pieces because it's in those first three verses that the writer of the epistle sets the trajectory for the remainder of the book naming Jesus as one with God, creator God, superior to all creation. And today he's going to begin explaining that Jesus is superior to the angels. So angels are found all throughout scripture. They're the, they're the messengers of God. They execute the will of God. Occasionally they're found going into battle or even performing some kind of miracle. They're obedient to God. And so as they deliver the messages of God, they, they call attention not to themselves consistently, but rather the God who sent them, okay? Now in our city, uh, it's a very, very, as you know, very, very secular city, but not purely secular. We're also quite spiritual in Seattle, secular, and spiritual at the same time. In fact, as you know, we're part of the nun zone. When people are interviewed at every census, N-O-N-E, that's what they tick on the box when it comes to religious affiliation. There isn't one, right? We have, we just nun zone. But that doesn't mean we're not deeply spiritual in this region. In fact, there are three primary spiritual expressions that are found in secular places. They manifest themselves in New Age religion, white supremacy slash the occult, um, like an apocalyptic kind of expression of spiritualism, and then the last one is in nature worship. That's what we, where we find ourselves. So when we talk about angels in Seattle, it wouldn't be uncommon to, not, to, to find people that wouldn't be actually intrigued by that idea. Angels. And maybe... Were someone to encounter an angel in Seattle that would be a secular-minded person, they may be tempted to do what people in the Bible do oftentimes in encountering an angel. They attempt to worship the angels, right? John does that, for example, and the angels consistently go, no, 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 not me. Him over there, that's the one. Um, so as we look into this, we're gonna, look, we're gonna see what God has to say about Jesus' superiority to the angels. Angels are not the creator of all things. Jesus is. Angels were not in the beginning. Jesus was. 
Angels did not form Adam and Eve in their own image. Jesus did. Angels are not all powerful. Jesus is. Angels do not know all things. Jesus does. Angels did not walk on water. Jesus did. Angels did not confront religious authorities and overturn them. Jesus did. Angels did not call the disciples. Jesus did. Angels did not stand before Pilate, but Jesus did. Angels did not carry a cross to Calvary, but Jesus did. Angels did not die for your sins. Jesus did. Angels were not buried. Jesus was. Angels did not rise from the dead. Jesus did. Angels are not seated on the throne of God. Jesus is. Amen? You see? Angels did not send the Holy Spirit into the church. Jesus did. Angels are not the head of the church. They are not the groom. Angels are not the way, the truth, and the life. Angels are not the resurrection and the life. Angels are not the true vine. Angels are not the door. Angels are not the good shepherd. Angels did not fulfill the law. Angels are not awaiting for the signal from the Father to go and redeem the bride finally. Angels are not the centerpiece of heaven. Jesus is. So, the question is not, is Jesus like the angels? The question is, are the angels attempting to act a little bit more like Jesus? That's what we're saying as Christians. So now that I've preached my sermon, um, I'm going to walk, <laughs> walk through the scripture. Here's what it says in verse 4 of chapter 1 in Hebrews. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, so then the question becomes, how did Jesus become more superior to the angels? I thought he already was superior to the angels. Well, in the first three verses, the writer points out that Jesus made purification for our sins, which means this. Jesus is one with God. God does not send an angel down to earth, but rather Jesus clothed himself in flesh, becomes, comes in the likeness of a man, but not just a king, but Jesus comes as a slave, as a servant, which means in Christian anthropology, they go on and on about what Jesus actually accomplished. That Jesus, the supreme being, lowered himself to the, the lowest possible rung in humanity. He comes as a slave, and then as he dies, he dies a slave's death on a cross. So Jesus went to the most humble place. And as he triumphs in resurrection and is seated at the right hand of God, this is what the writer has in mind. His name is, he has inherited, is vastly superior to the angels as he's now in his rightful place in glory. And now the writer of Hebrews strings together seven passages throughout the Old Testament. Five of them are coming from the Psalms, one of them comes from the law, and one of them comes from 2 Samuel as he explains Jesus' superiority as the Son of God to the angels. Okay? So here we go. He begins by asking two rhetorical questions. Verse 5. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? To which of the angels did God ever say that? In the Old Testament, God does call the angels in the book of Job sons of God. And in Hosea, God will refer to Israel as the son of God. But this is a unique figure. To which of the angels did God single out and say, you, you are my beloved son? Answer, none of them. <laughs> the angels were there to announce the birth of Jesus, and they gloried in the birth of Jesus. But when Jesus was baptized, what happens? The Father opens the heavens. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What brings a smile to the face of God more than anything is his own son. God grins over Jesus. To which of the angels did God ever say that? None of them. Jesus is the son of God. And it comes, this quote comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. And this psalm is quoted three times in the New Testament. And each time the writers are explaining a different nuance of the ministry of Jesus. Here in Hebrews 1, Psalm 2-7, Jesus is superior to angels. In Hebrews chapter 5, it's in reference to Jesus being our high priest. And then over in Acts 13, remember this? It's used in reference to Jesus' resurrection. Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 110 are absolutely invaluable passages of Scripture in early Christian thinking as it comes to reflecting on the person and the work of Jesus. So if you need something to read this week and you want to return to it again and again, Psalms tend to be a place where we like to hang out. Camp out in Psalm 2. Camp out in Psalm 110. All right. Then it says this, and again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, it says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, so as, oh, I'm sorry, I missed a verse. We can't miss this one. This one's good too, sorry. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Which of the angels did God say that? None of them, none of them. This verse is trying to express the utterly unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. I'll be to him a father. He will be to me a son. Jesus and the Father are never at odds. They're never competing with each other. They're never fighting with one another, but rather they delight in one another consistently. We'll do a class on the Trinity someday soon in which we can unpack this at some real length. But you need to know the reason why God is the happiest person in the universe is because at the center of himself is somebody else. That's the Trinity. He's my son. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. The Greek here, um, it's a word proskuneo. Pros meaning to or towards. Kaneo meaning to kiss. And so, in the ancient Near East, the way this the, uh, this this plays out is this: if two equals come together to have mutual respect for one another, you kiss one another on the lips. But if one is a little bit inferior, you greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. 
But if you come into the presence of a king in which you find yourself completely, totally, utterly helpless and inferior to, proskuneo literally means to bow down on your knees and to put your forehead on the ground or to literally lay yourself out prostrate completely and literally to blow a kiss toward. This is the posture of an angel before Jesus, utterly laid out. There's, not, there's no competition here. So they just lay out and they blow their kisses toward the king. You see, this is what God is looking for is for people to worship him in spirit and truth. And when, I mean, when you're laid out on your face like this, there's no saving face. When you worship Jesus, there's no room to compete with your brothers or sisters. When you worship Jesus, you don't look for excuses around helping your neighbor. When you worship Jesus, holiness is not a burden, but it's the call and the joy of your life. When you worship Jesus, he runs your schedule, your time. You got time to waste when you're caught up in worship. That's what God is looking for. And in fact, that's what angels just do. They lay on their face before Jesus and they blow their kisses toward the king. That's awesome. You want something to live for? You need some wind in your sail? It's not at your job and it's not gonna be your education or your grade point average or the next square footage that you add onto your house or the thing you're longing for. The deepest fulfillment of your life is found laid out before Jesus, blowing kisses toward your king. And you know what worship, this is what worship looks like on Monday. God, help me do my work in such a way to carry it out ethically, to work diligently, to work hard, so that it might be a kiss that lands on the feet of my Savior who gave me that job. That's an example. My marriage, my relationships, my technology, and whatever I find in front of me, Jesus, I want this to be used in such a way that it looks like a kiss that lands on your feet. That's awesome. You see, when you get to heaven, or maybe if you actually were to encounter angels standing around the water cooler today, you know what they're not doing? Talking about their track record. They're all talking about Jesus. That's all they care about. That's the only thing they care about, the centerpiece of heaven. They're utterly astounded is what Peter says. Angels long to look into the things that you and I have experienced. Think. In the fall, when the angels rebelled against God, God did not send his son to die and redeem angels that were fallen. That's why angels are so intrigued by what we enjoy as Christians. God sent his own son for you. His son? He must think an awful lot of you. He does. Amen. Yeah, that's great news. Okay, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers are a flame of fire. This is speaking to the 
the idea that the angels serve God swiftly, like wind, and they're effective like fire. But of the sun, he goes back and now compares the sun, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So, the throne of Jesus, to be reminded again today, is not up for grabs. No one in creation, angels included, no one's going to sit on his throne. It is the most secure place in the whole world. Jesus on his throne endures forever and ever. And honestly, I find a lot of comfort day by day reminding myself of this reality as our world rocks and reels, as politics rage, as things happen constantly in which everything feels so unsure and uncertain, the world does feel like sinking sand and all the rest, right? But as you remind yourself, Jesus' throne is occupied and that's good news because you've got a good king on his throne. Your scepter, Jesus, is of uprightness. This literally, literally means uh, is without hypocrisy. Meaning that Jesus isn't a crooked politician lying to the citizens, telling them one thing, but then doing something else. No, no, no. His is completely integrous, completely pure, completely perfect, completely just in every way. The scepter of your throne, Jesus, is uprightness. That's our king. You've loved righteousness. This is written, by the way, this was written 1000 BC, and they already start talking past tense about Jesus' daily life. <laughs> you loved you loved righteousness. If you wanted to know what Jesus was about, he would be about loving righteousness. That was his actual reputation, meaning Jesus loved justice. Jesus loved it when someone would speak truth to power. Jesus loved that. Jesus loved seeing sick people made well. Jesus loved seeing marriages be healed. Jesus loved seeing blind people see. Jesus loved seeing outsiders become insiders. Jesus loved seeing unclean people called clean. Jesus loved when enemies of God would be reconciled to God and his father would delight in them as his own son, as we become the children of God. This is the stuff Jesus loved. Jesus loved truth-telling. Jesus loved that. You loved righteousness and you hated wickedness. Yes, Jesus hates some things in this world. Jesus hates injustice. Jesus hates it when people are exploited. Jesus hates it when people are pimped out on Aurora. Jesus hates certain things in this world. Jesus hates it. He doesn't just turn a blind eye in the name of grace. Jesus hates some things in this world because Jesus hates sin. Jesus loves righteousness. That's awesome. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay. Um, this, this word gladness, <laughs> it's almost impossible to try to train. The idea is literally, it's, it, it means explosive joy. <laughs> Literally, it means explosive 
happiness. And it even connotes ideas of dancing and jumping and spinning and singing. That's what Jesus actually looks like. Guys, I know it's Seattle, Washington, and we are very like cerebral, but I'm freaking out right now over this reality that God is happy. And if you were to encounter Jesus today in heaven, if he were to get off his throne, it would be with a huge smile on his face. He would jump, dance, sing, celebrate. He would strike up a band because Jesus is the happiest being in the universe. God has anointed his son with gladness that Jesus doesn't have a grudge with you, that Jesus isn't picking on you, that Jesus is delighted in you, that Jesus has resurrected and is reigned. He has defeated Satan. He defeated demons. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated your sin. He's defeated everything that stood in opposition to God. And he has given his righteousness to his people. He is oh, elated in gladness. Aren't you happy that you know Jesus? That that's your Savior? That not one thing in this world can separate you from your Savior? Not one thing. Not one website. Not one stupid relationship. Not one wrong turn can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the power of the resurrection. And because Jesus, of all people, knows the resurrection better than any of us, that's why he's anointed with the oil of gladness. Did you know that gloomy, grumpy Christians make no sense? Cheer up. And I'm not saying don't grieve. Grieve. The presence of God is a place to process your pain better than anywhere. Absolutely grieve. Absolutely wail. Absolutely have the hard day. But also to live an entire life staring at the floor where the resurrected Savior is just completely inconsistent with what Jesus has done. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. So Jesus, the point of the sermon today is Jesus is the happiest. All right. So now, and the Lord said this. Look. You laid, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning. This is called calling Jesus creator. We mentioned this last week, but Jesus is not just a good prophet or a wisdom sage, but Jesus is one with God. Jesus was with God in the beginning and was involved actively in bringing all things into creation. The things that our city naturally worships in just creation, Jesus made that stuff. So we admire his creation, but we don't worship creation. We worship the creator who made all things. You were in the beginning. I mean, he's just called us all out there. Jesus was in the beginning. Not you. Not me. Not whoever's in the White House or on Twitter. Jesus was in the beginning. Oh, yeah. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. And like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. Everything is coming to an end. That's what this is saying. All creation is coming to an end. Our bodies are getting older. Oh, well, I feel it. I'm turning 41 in a couple days. Man, I know for sure because my body tells me. <laughs> but you can feel it. Your body's getting older. Creation is groaning. Things are wearing out. And there's going to come a day where Jesus, as king of creation, will return. And he's going to take everything and take it off like a garment and roll it up and fold it up and put it away once and for all and bring in new creation all together. That's our Savior. That's our king. 
So, and when this psalm was originally written, the psalmist was actually lamenting, going through a hard time. And as he was going through a hard time, he realized it's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be hard. We're not always going to have people fighting. We're not always going to have injustice going on. We're not always going to have to go to counseling because it's always so stinking hard. There's coming a day where the king is going to return in triumph and he's going to take it all like a garment, fold it up, and put it away forever. Creation is wearing out like last year's work gloves and Jesus is on the way. Thank you, Jesus. If you have nothing else to look forward to in life, look forward to that. And in fact, maybe let that moment define all the rest. All right, I'm almost done. Mostly because I'm just shouting and I'm tired. <laughs> not because there's not a lot to say, trust me. Oh, and your years will have no end. Your years will have no end. Everything will be changed. All things will be made new. Angels included. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now we know the posture of the angels in the presence of Jesus. They're laid out. There's one, though, that stands, do you remember? Gabriel, in Luke chapter 1, where he introduces himself. You begin to learn about, oh, Jesus is on the way. And Gabriel introduces himself and he says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So there's one. But everybody else is laid out in worship before Jesus. To which of the angels does God ever say, yeah, sit down, have a seat? <laughs> nope. None of them. But there is someone seated in the presence of God. The Son of God, seated on the throne. And he's made a footstool out of the enemies. Meaning that when Jesus returns and justice, final justice happens on the last day, Jesus will prop his feet up as the victor. Nobody's more powerful than Jesus. In fact, you can find out tomorrow when you go to work or when you're with somebody, just say his name. Nobody's like Jesus. <laughs> Last verse. The question about the angels then. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The question is, so, so what's the angel's job in the world? Whatever God has them doing, it's for the sake of the people of God who are predetermined to inherit salvation meaning the angels are executing the will of God on your behalf. They serve the risen king. That's the role of the angel. So like, well, how do you apply a passage like this? Maybe one would just be reminded, well, if you're not a Christian today, I'd invite you to place your faith in Jesus. Not go to church. Going to church is important, but I'd I can't find anybody else in creation that's like this. You should give your life to this person. One. Two, as far as 
do some self-reflection. Who is Jesus to you? Like John says, have you lost your first love? Have you drifted away? Have you melted kind of into like a, a lukewarm kind of, I'm more or less indifferent to Jesus. But let the scripture work on you a bit and go, you know what? Uh, Jesus, you do deserve all. You deserve my attitude. You deserve my relationships. You deserve you deserve anything I have given to me comes from you. And so allow that to determine a posture and a lifestyle of worship. I'm telling you, the freest person in the world is the one bowed before Jesus. Jesus is not a crooked king that scolds and hurts his people. Jesus loves his people. Jesus cares for his people. Jesus provides for his people. And remember, church, that this glorious, exalted king stooped so low, gave his life for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. <laughs> so with that being said, let's close. We'll close in prayer. Dan, I want to invite you. Um, we pray sometimes in church. And you guys can watch Dan walk up. It's fine. We, uh, we don't use prayer as transition time in church for people to get on the stage and things like that. That's not the point of prayer at all. Prayer is talking to God, so we don't make little of it. Um, but I want to talk to Jesus. I want us to talk to Jesus, our King. Can we just take a moment and just do that together as a church family? To tell Him what's on your heart, to tell Him what's on your mind, to ask the Holy Spirit to do some work in you. You probably already know that place that God needs to work. You probably already know. So why don't we do that? Let's just take a moment and talk to our risen King who has conquered sin who has given us his righteousness, and let's just speak with him for a moment. Let's do that. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for hearing our prayer today. Father, we ask that you would work in us and on us and through us for the glory of your name. Create worshiping hearts within us. Would you forgive us for the time, the hours, the days, the moments in which we forget, Jesus, that you are on your throne and that you do deserve all the praise and all of the glory. Forgive us for the moments that we forget and pursue our own agenda. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to regenerate move in us, animating us. Help us to not be worried so much about saving face. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. 
Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray these things.